0: Created by Future Forum, this is part two of the 20-Minute City podcast. It's about 20 minutes with a couple of interesting people at the intersection between their sense of wellbeing and the city we live in. In this second instalment, we come face-to-face with a polar bear alongside resilience coach Cern Christensen and dig deeper into the Adelaide of Angelique Edmonds, a Senior Lecturer of Architecture at the University of South Australia and author of Connecting People, Place and Design. I'm Dino Vrignos, Creative Director of Future Forum, and architect and director of Dust Studio. And once again, this is Angelique Edmonds. We're going to talk a bit more in depth about you a little further on during this episode of the podcast and your book, but first I just want to check in and see how you are. How's the world treating you at the moment?
1: Well, I think like most of us... Um... I'm getting a bit fatigued at this point. I think we all rallied in the beginning of all the changes, but I think, like most people, there's a, there's a sense that this has turned into a bit of a marathon and wondering how much longer the uncertainty goes for before we find a, a new stable.
0: And I think that's the word, the uncertainty component of this, where we've had these sorts of global events in the past, they are largely a moment, and then there's a plan to come out of it, whereas in this instance there's no seeming end right now and that's putting a lot of pressure on a lot of people because it's just unfamiliar territory. So I think resilience will be something that we delve into a bit through this episode and so on that note, our 20 minutes starts now.
2: Hello, my name is Soren Christensen and that's how you say it in Aussie language but in Denmark where I'm from, it's said CERN. <laughs> I'm a resilience coach and a health system designer and I live here in Adelaide in South Australia. I work with both elite athletes and also the ordinary people. And I guess what I do is I build mental health um, through the training, the physical endurance and training we do. Something that I absolutely believe in is the is the mind and the body is, is one piece, it's one part of a total health picture of all of us. What is well-being to me? Um, well, I, I guess the way I look at it is to flip around and say, if you're not being well, what well, then are you being sick? How you answer that question, it's more to do with me about a person's attitude towards conflict and how they deal with conflict in their own lives. So even if I say the word conflict, most people will straight away raise the shoulders and remove their neck because they are scared. They get a bit of a turn of the stomach. But conflict is something that we shouldn't be scared of and, and avoid and stay away from. I think that's bullshit because conflict is part of life. It's, it's the yin and the yang. It's the, it's the ups and downs, and it's going to happen to you no matter what happens. And in my life, I've realized conflict has been a bit of a theme in some moments. I joined the army, the Danish army, when I was 19. I wasn't doing a, a lot of good stuff with my life. I was drinking and, and having a good time and just working. But I ended up in Bosnia when I was 20 and was in charge of 25 people, 25 people's lives. And that was part of the uh, NATO forces in, back in '95. And a little bit later on, I had another conflict when I met an Australian woman in Canada. And this is the beautiful thing about love is that it's beautiful, but there's also potential conflict. And I had to eventually choose between my own country or somewhere on the other side of the planet. And even after I met my my now wife, Jane, I got selected to do this special forces thing in Denmark, in the Danish army, where we patrol Greenland. So it's a bit over two years, it's two and a half years more or less. So I guess that I was very lucky that my wife turned out to be a very resilient person. What I understand about well-being is is taught to me through my life experience. Whether it's me dealing with a drunken Croat who had a double barrel shotgun pushed into my chest because I was standing between him and another person that he wanted to murder, and I'm trying to calm them down, or whether it's me open the window on a hut in Greenland, and one meter away there's a polar bear. It's the same thing, it's, you have to respond to that conflict. And even in these uncertain times, I've, I said to these people that are now coaches that we have to accept, we have to adapt, and then we're gonna move on. So I created this thing we call power play as an experiment really. It's a system of, of fitness training that puts the, the person through intents and, and workouts that we monitor. So we, we do a great deal out of making sure that everyone gets what they need. And we work on these machines, these ergometers that I helped design for this Australian company called Synergy. You, you can say that, and they will probably say that we trash them. And I say, well, no, I don't really trash them. We, we push them, but with a purpose. There's always a purpose. There's always a why. So with the power play group, this high intensity and, and the periodic training we use has given this group of people a new regard for themselves. They they see themselves differently because time after time, after time, in our workouts, they've done more than what they thought they could do. And they've, they've said, oh, I can't do that. Or we keep on saying, no, yes, you can. And they end up doing it, which is the fantastic thing. And we teach them not to show any grimace. We teach them not to to show any emotion, because we don't want to hear about it. If we don't care, of course we do, but the whole point is that making faces or whinging, it doesn't change anything. So the face that really makes me smile is that feeling straight after they've done something, they feel elated, they feel elevated, they feel satisfaction, smiling, a radiant face after something, a bit of a a thrashing, I guess you can say. And that for me is, is the face of someone who's overcome adversity. They've experienced that inner battle with themselves, a conflict of wanting to, I want to quit, I want to stop, this hurts, why am I doing this? This is stupid. But then there's the other side saying, no, no, I, I can do more, I can do better. And that's that thing when, when people then say, well, I did it. We also have a lot of attention on the mental health in society right now, which is great. I, I think we need to talk about it, but this well-being. It's, for me, a little bit too much talk and not enough doing. I believe in movement. Moving makes you feel better. Doing something makes you be well. So, well-being for me is not about a sense state or a meditation. For me, it's about doing well. It's about doing. That's it, you know.
0: Just do. Well, that was a very interesting take on what wellbeing is and the idea of doing versus being. And we've talked about that in the previous chat we had. What are your thoughts initially on what CERN had to say?
1: I think it's fascinating. Um, And I can, um, obviously not having met him and hearing his own description of himself and his history, I think I can understand if you've been trained in the army why you might come to the place he has around um, that it's all about doing. But I personally think that that's that's terrific and he's absolutely right. If we all got too busy gazing at our navels, we wouldn't be very effective at moving through change. But I definitely think from my perspective, there's a balance because I think pushing your limits and the adrenaline of going outside your comfort zone and proving to yourself you can do something is fantastic, but you can't do it every day, 24-7, 365 days a year. We're human. We have a nervous system that also needs nourishing with calm time with time where you get to reflect, with time where you actually process. Like he said, when you're pushing yourself, he doesn't want to hear about people's shitty emotions. Good point if you're only interested in the physical um, triumph, but quite often in those moments when uh, you've pushed yourself in adrenaline or even right now where people are really pushing themselves to the limit, a whole lot of unresolved trauma can come up And actually, the process of being able to give yourself some time to process it and let it go is a critical part of moving through to a a better place. But if you just keep squashing down, no, we're not going to have any feelings about this. We're not going to let the feelings out. We're just going to focus on the doing. I actually think in the long term, that's quite a um, risky thing for mental health.
0: Yeah, it could be a bit of a recipe for disaster. I guess that idea of quashing the conflict emotionally and physically Mm. is something that could rear its head down the line if you um, continually suppress.
1: And obviously he does this for a living, so I'm no expert and mm. he has his reasons for doing his 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 way of it. So, you know, it's just a different perspective, I guess, because um, I think we're all really different. Maybe some people are predisposed to that particular way and it works really well for them and good luck to them. No, no absolutely. I'm just, I'm just not sure that it's um, for everybody. I know myself, um, you know, different scenario, but I was rowing in Cambridge And the way we were pushed was really intense. Anyone who's done rowing at a competitive level understands that there's a point at which your body just can't do anymore. So it becomes actually a competition about your mental fitness, not your physical fitness. And I guess all elite athletes probably, you know, go through this. For those who are elite athletes, I'm probably mincing the proper description of this. But I'm very well aware that, you know, there's a point at which in your physical prowess, it's actually about your mental fitness. And in order to manage that, you do have to push away. Your mental voice that pushes you further has to be the strongest, no doubt. Hmm. But I think that works under competitive circumstances. If you were to operate that way throughout your life, I think there could be some not so flash ramifications.
0: Yeah, there needs to be some relief to that. I think um, part of the trick with managing mental health and well being is about trying to find that equilibrium, equilibrium and balance. If hmm. if you occupy the extremes, that's the recipe for disaster. So for that. That idea of pushing and performing at a heightened state, it is not sustainable unless you are the one in a billion person who can
1: mm. do that
0: sort of thing. And so finding a way to take the top off and the bottom off and find a creamier middle is actually going to give you a more healthy, fulfilling life, I think. Yeah. And that's the trick.
1: I, th- I think I, I think I'm with you. The only thing I'd say is that I don't think like kind of blanding out and living at the bland is what you mean. That that we can have tops and bottoms, but we don't live at the top all the time or at the bottom all the time. We kind of we allow ourselves to move between them. Is that are we on the same page about yeah, that? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And
0: I suppose I guess the idea being that if you can if you can manage the the differences between the heights and the lows, that hmm. incrementally build up what your baseline is and your capacity. I think that's what's interesting. And I think what's happening now with this. 2020 that we're experiencing, mm. everything is in conflict to a certain extent. And so it's putting a lot of pressure on how we are going about our days and how we're feeling about the future. And I think that's a big part of the challenges that we're going to face for the foreseeable future, because what's unique about this, that there isn't a defined sort of end game or there isn't a clear pathway out of this.
1: Yeah, I'd absolutely agree. I think um, a big part is like how much you have in reserve. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of people have used up their reserve during this, you know, the last five, six months, and that's probably where the fatigue's coming from, is that uh, we do have the capacity to deal with constant change, but to deal with it endlessly is difficult. Um, hence, people now thinking, okay, how much more of this uncertainty are we going to be managing? But that's what, um, you know, a, a big shift in era is a big paradigm shift's all about. Something really positive could be coming, We just don't know when yet, and in the uncertainty of how much longer it is till it arrives, it creates more concern for people, I suppose.
0: So, Angelique, you came to Adelaide some time ago, now 10 years or so ago.
1: Yeah, close to 12, yep. Um,
0: I'm really interested to understand where the idea for this book that you recently authored came from Connecting People, Place, and Design.
1: Whoa. okay. Um, It's been in me for much longer than the Adelaide period. So uh, the work that's written about in here is sort of consolidating maybe 20 years of research and goes back to, I suppose, during studying architecture, being a little concerned that the the opportunities for practice I felt at the time were corralled into very commercially driven outcomes. And yet I was really uh, inspired by what I was learning that our cultural and political and social values are actually the determiner of how we create places. So, um, my father's a property developer, and as soon as I finished my architecture degree, he was pretty keen for me to go and work with him, and probably very disappointed that I ended up going and volunteering in Aboriginal communities, because I wasn't really chasing the dollar at that age. I really wanted to keep learning more about relationship to country. So that's kind of where it started. And then, living in an indigenous community for a couple of years, doing an MPhil, Master of Philosophy in History and Philosophy of Architecture at Cambridge on those topics and then a PhD based in a community in Arnhem Land in Roper River Um, and then bringing that work into understanding diversity in our cultures more generally. So there's a much longer answer but I'm trying to keep that brief.
0: No, it's okay. So it's a pretty extraordinary experience that you've had within the Indigenous communities or some Indigenous communities within Australia. How, How are you finding that assimilation or the sort of coming together of that historical way of living for such a long time with the more colonial contemporary way in which we think of Australian life?
1: Wow, a great question. Um, I think it's starkly obvious to me and from what I learnt that relationships are the baseline of all order in Indigenous communities and I think in 2020 in our contemporary lives we're being reminded of just how important they are and yet how um, other values had through colonial agenda and our um, sort of capitalist contemporary lives. Other agendas had been allowed to become front runners and relationships had become a little bit of a kind of known needed quantity but not prioritised as much. And I think we've all been sort of um, given a reminder of the stark importance of them. So, you know, in traditional communities, there's no need to own anything because if you confirm your relationships with others, you will always be looked after. As long as you look after other people, then in a kinship network, they'll always be looking after you. So, um, you know, in the book I talk about, there was a particular woman in um, Roper River in Arnhem Land who said to me, you know, you white fellas are crazy. You run around trying to make security in one place with owning one house and you've just got security and stability in that one spot. But we have freedom to go anywhere because we affirm ourselves through relationships. We've got security always. And um, it's a pretty good point, especially in our contemporary... And, of course, um, those systems have been degraded by the impact of colonisation, so what she's speaking about in Arnhem Land is only possible in places where those relationships have been able to be maintained. Mm -hmm. Um, But I thought it was a a pretty good way of describing that, yeah, we might have allowed other values to come to the fore when perhaps they now need to be rebalanced.
0: And that's the right word. I think this rebalance now we're going to find post whatever the next couple of years looks like, there is that opportunity for rebirth and a a rethinking of the way in which we live. So is there an opportunity to bring some of those ideas into the way we live? I think more than ever, there's been outreach from people to always want to understand how you're doing and check in. And there seems to be a greater desire for a a different version of community at the moment?
1: Yeah, which is which is really exciting. I mean, I think it's the beginning of um, a different kind of social fabric and that sort of fabric is only seeded by small threads finding one another. And I think to, to come back to um, Soren's work, um, he's, what he was talking about in some ways I think speaks a lot about agency and people finding from the circumstance you're in, what can you do with where you are? Mm-hmm. How, rather than feel like it's happening to you, How do you take stock of, well, what can I control in this circumstance and how can I be active in what I am doing about it? And I think in that sense, for people who are really actively looking after the relationships in their life and forging new ones and perhaps coming together in new ways of um, reciprocity to find new forms of community that nourish them and whom they nourish is actually a really great way for people to be enacting their agency and starting a, a potentially new way of how we relate to each other and how we sustain ourselves because it's clear that we're not going to sustain ourselves with the same capitalist system. It may be a slightly different one. No one knows exactly how it's going to vary, but it's pretty clear that for at least the next two, three, who knows, five years, things are not going to recover to where they were at the end of 2019, so we are going to need a new way of sustaining ourselves.
0: And I think these, these new constraints, it's relevant to one of the guiding principles Um, that you summarise at the end, the the idea of the constraint. And if I can read this quote, an important first step is to embrace constraints rather than overlook or seek to escape from them. That idea about what our constraints are looking like now and how they've changed the fact that so much of the way the society was built up was based on assumptions and those assumptions are now being really questioned and unravelled. How does the city moving forward, how does place... In the, the next decade and years to come, how is that going to change the way in which we can get buyers communities?
1: It's a fabulous question. and I think it's on lots of people's minds just trying to work out, um, yeah, what, what are the threads that we take as the givens wherever we are, the particularities that are the opportunity and work with them the best we can. I think this whole, um, for want of a better term, system for living that globalisation has created is often completely not in response to the geographic, climatic and cultural specificities of a place, because we've had world trade that brings you know, other products and other ways of living to a place, regardless of where it actually is in the world. And this opportunity we have now, I think, is to actually really embrace more, which is more aligned with an Indigenous perspective what are the great strengths and things you have where you are and how do you make the most of them, which is not to say you're not still trading ideas with other people and trading where you can, but that you're not reliant on that trade and and then without it feeling bereft. So I think, again, that's another part of the agency of what does your spot have, what does it have that's fantastic, and how do you make the most of that and enrich other people who are in that place making the most of it, which I guess is kind of an endorsement for the... 20-minute city and all the good things Adelaide has because there's, there's a lot of fantastic things in Adelaide that we have that Sydney and Melbourne and other bigger cities in Australia don't have mm-hmm. and right now we are enjoying a much more gentle process through this than both those cities and for that I'm very grateful.
0: Absolutely. I think we all are. Um, I think just to close that out because it is, I guess, where some of this idea of what makes Adelaide and South Australia potentially unique and the idea of our own purpose and identity I think that's a very interesting thing to to close on, the fact that we can take the nuance of a place and play to our strengths and really own those things and that becomes a key indicator as to who we are and what we want to be. So I think that's a nice way to finish. Great. Thanks to our guests for taking us through their city. You can learn more about CERN by searching for PowerPlay on social media and Connecting People, Place and Design by Angelique Edmonds is now available to purchase from most online booksellers. Twenty Minute City is a podcast series created by Future Forum in collaboration with Dust Studio and City Mag. If twenty minutes isn't enough, head to future forum.com.au for more from CERN, Angelique, and the people who make Adelaide better. And just like that, our time is up.